The following is a production of Government CIO Media. Hello and welcome to GovCast. My name is Amanda Ziede, your host and reporter with Government CIO Media. Today we have Steve Blank, entrepreneur, founder of the Lean Startup Movement, and professor. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. Thanks for having me. I was reading your bio and you said that you might have been chosen as least likely to succeed in high school. So coming from someone who's obviously had so much success, why do you say that? What were you like in high school? I grew up in what was politely called now a dysfunctional family where uh, survival was a day-to-day activity. I mean, that was what was taking up most of my bandwidth. And so I was a terrible student. In fact, I would call myself a mercy graduate of New York (laughs) City high school system and truly was kind of just focused on literally getting through the day and then dropped out of college and joined the Air Force during Vietnam. And that's when I discovered I actually had a set of skills that were fairly unique, Mm -hmm. though didn't understand how unique and what I could do with them. But It was only under chaos and uncertainty, which I grew up under, which is the definition of war zone, that actually those skills became useful. So that's where the Society of Wild Weasels came in? (laughs) So, (laughs) very long story, um, but I'll try and make it short. You know, I volunteered for the Air Force and went through classic basic training, and then I wanted to get into the most exciting thing I could find for an unknown techie at the time, which was, oh, I want to work on computers. I remember my recruiter saying, oh, you did great on your electronic score. Don't worry. Just tell them that that's what you want when you get the basic training. And of course, that was not what the government needed at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never got to work on computers, but I actually got sent to a much better school in hindsight. I got to work on something called electronic warfare and electronic intelligence systems, which was a need in Southeast Asia at the time. But out of electronic school, everybody's getting their assignments, you know, Vietnam, Tansanut, and, and Da Nang, and Thailand, or Germany, and I get assigned to the Cushis base in the United States in Miami, Homestead <laughs> <laughs> Air Force Base. And, and I was disappointed. I mean, right. And everybody said, what, what are you going? Action. You're going to Miami. <laughs> so I remember getting to the Air Force Base. And the first week, someone walks in and says, anybody want to volunteer to go to Southeast Asia? And I remember to this day... Everybody else who was like an experienced lifer laughing hysterically, Mm -hmm. like who'd want to volunteer? You know, in the military, they tell you, don't volunteer for anything. And I continued the rest of my life to realize that that is the world's worst advice. I stepped forward and volunteered and my life changed for the better. And so I volunteered to go to Southeast Asia. And I said, I discovered that, you know, I was trained in the cruelest possible way to operate in chaos and uncertainty Mm -hmm. and actually when everybody thought it was, oh, what's going on? Great. It's just a normal day. And then I also had pattern recognition skills, which was great for troubleshooting lots of stuff mm-hmm. under extreme pressure. And that was just fine with me. And those two traits operate in chaos and uncertainty and comfort in it. And then being able to pattern recognize and operate at speed and make connections that were there, but just weren't intuitively obvious, which I thought mm-hmm. were obvious to everybody basically made my entire career. Plus maybe a third thing, which wasn't obvious to me at the time, is that I was born with an intense curiosity about everything. I didn't care if it was my responsibility or not, but I was just curious about what was going on all over. And those three traits, I think, were the only three skills I had, which I kind of made into a career. Well, you must have other skills because you were repairing jets? Yeah, in- electronic equipment. for. Electron- yeah. Yeah. I started out on the flight line, which is on the line where the planes and just mm-hmm. literally lugging boxes in the 110-degree Thailand weather, oh. thinking that maybe I made the wrong decision. 
<laughs> in volunteering, but I would go back into the shop where they were repairing stuff and, mm-hmm. and help out. And then one day the shop chief, and back then a shop for electronic warfare was 160 people, said, what are you doing in here? Well, you know, I'm just helping out. Mm-hmm. I said, well, why don't you see if you could fix these boxes? And, of course, I was pretty good at it. And he said, well, tomorrow you're no longer working on the flight line. You were working on in the shop. And, and later on I got to manage at 19 or 18, you know, a group of 30 people. I didn't know that was any, okay. You know, that, um, just came naturally to me because I liked it. And again, as I said, I wasn't very smart, but I was. I did have those skills of both pattern recognition and like the more stuff you throw at me, usually the better. Mm-hmm. And that isn't being a better person. It just happened to be a different skill. And as I uh, as I got older, I actually would ask my students. A good number of them were founders and want to be founders of companies. How many of you come from dysfunctional families? And a scary percentage of CEOs, people who want to start companies, mm-hmm. come from dysfunctional families. And I remind them that the it was the cruelest but most effective training ground in the world mm-hmm. to learn how to operate in an environment that is uncertain and unknown and changing daily. And I'm sure it, it makes it a little bit easier to work under pressure when you've kind of been under pressure. Sure. And has one downside. And mm-hmm. it's not obvious is, in fact... It makes you a great CEO. And as I remind my students, no, but it's not a requirement to be a CEO. (laughs) Uh, But the one downside is people come from that environment and operate great under chaos. When the company or organization finds a scalable and repeatable pattern, when in fact you should now go into execution mode and not operate in chaos, Mm -hmm. will throw their own hand grenades into their own organization virtually to keep the chaos going because that's the only time they're comfortable. And in fact, they're immensely uncomfortable and if you've ever worked for one of those people, you will recognize the behavior. Mm-hmm. It took me 30 years to realize that's why I create chaos. When things are going smoothly, it's weird. It is weird. <laughs> um, but in fact, if you kind of move your skill set to, oh, you're great at starting stuff and you either need to change your behavior mm-hmm. or, no, why don't you just focus on starting things? Because that turns out to be not a common skill when I kind of thought, well, it was. Mm-hmm. So in Thailand, was that your introduction to everything, like everything? <laughs> <laughs> to, 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 to the real world? I mean, and at 18, it was a real introduction. Mm-hmm. But to technology. Yeah, yeah, I had never seen any stuff before. It was mm-hmm. good. I think at the time, I still see students who come out of the military, the Air Force, and the military had some of the best vocational technology training that existed. I mean, mm-hmm. Keesler Air Force Base was great. I learned, you know basic electronics and I could rip apart anything and tear it apart and put it back together. I never seen this stuff and it had been interesting. I didn't even know what it was. So how did that eventually land you in Silicon Valley? Because I know you were there 1978, No, I was there in 72. 72? Oh, in Silicon Valley, 78. I was in the Air Force in 72. And so I got out of the military, tried to go back to school at University of Michigan. Actually, I was stationed in a fighter base, several fighter bases in Thailand to uh, what was then a B-52 bomber base in an organization called the Strategic Air Command. And the uh, planes, instead of carrying conventional weapons, carried nuclear weapons. And the electronic warfare equipment was huge instead of small, but Mm -hmm. uh, same idea. And uh, I got stationed in Michigan, and my girlfriend happened to be in Ann Arbor, so it was perfect that we commute down. (laughs) And so when I got out of the military, I went back to school in Ann Arbor and managed again to get thrown out of college. 
So, <laughs> so I've yet to get a degree. That's not fair. I've gotten a couple of honorary degrees, but I've never actually earned one. That's amazing. It is. A, it's, <laughs> uh, life is funny. And got a job as a field mm-hmm. engineer in hindsight, what was a startup in Ann Arbor. And I was like 50% of field service department and would fly around the Midwest, not understanding that I was watching the peak of manufacturing in the United mm-hmm. States in Ford and GM assembly plants and in steel plants, watching things being built, which I just took for granted. And now you kind of realize, you saw what? And I got out to Silicon Valley because this small company said, hey, there's a place in San Jose where we have a new uh, computer installation going up. We want you to go install the equipment there. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, the company admin got me tickets for San Jose, Costa Rica. Because no one had ever heard of San Jose, and no one knew what Silicon oh, Valley was. <laughs> and, and I said, I think it's the United States. And we had to go out and buy a map, wow. a map of the country, because no one had ever heard right. of this place. And back then, Silicon Valley sold components to other computer manufacturers mm-hmm. or devices to the military. So now we take for granted, you anybody at least had heard the phrase, no mm-hmm. one knew what this And we were in the computer business. It's like a culture now, too, yeah. not even just yeah. the phrase. Yeah. So, so I get out there, and it's actually funny. I would go out to, with an engineer, get off the airplane, rent a car. And you have to understand, back then in Ann Arbor, if there were two lines uh, for jobs in the weekly paper, everybody would point to it and say, look, there's another job for you know us or technicians or engineers. Mm-hmm. And that was like a lot of jobs. We get in the car and we're driving to our motel. And all of a sudden we hear on the radio, scientists, engineers, Intel is hiring. And we're going, what? Is this a joke? On the radio, there's an advertising. And, and we're still talking about this. We check into the hotel and I get the Sunday newspaper and it's about four inches thick. First section is a thin news section, and there's a sports section and an mm-hmm. art section. The classified ads were 48 pages. Oh, my gosh. Scientists and engineers. And as I'm turning through these papers, on the TV comes, scientists, engineers, technicians, four <laughs> phases hiring. And I ran into, I still remember, I ran into the shower and grabbed my friend who saw it out. I said, son, you got to go look at it. And That's we, crazy. we go, where are we? And here's the punchline. After a week there, mm-hmm. he got on the plane and went back. I never left. Wow, really? That's what entrepreneurs do. You grab opportunities when it hits you in the face. So did you like apply to any of these jobs? Oh, yeah. or is that when you, okay. I interviewed like at night. I was, I was, all like, these ads. All these, I went, <laughs> why would we ever go? But what are you thinking? <laughs> and the difference was he said, my family's there. And I said, you know what? I don't really have a family. So... This is opportunity. I mean, it was like somebody painted in neon lights that there is opportunity. Wow. It was like for anybody interested in technology, mm-hmm. it was like pot of gold here, you know, <laughs> cold winter over there. You know, That's true. <laughs> I, I always kind of described it as that was my first intelligence test about where. And my career was basically 21 years of increasing responsibility. I started as a lab technician. And mm-hmm. then, in fact, the first I actually had a fly back home, pack up my apartment, and drive across the country to get... I was going to say, did you have your things with you already? (laughs) to show up to my job. And this Mm -hmm. is the other beginning of when I thought I was a real entrepreneur is like I get there, and of course the woman in HR says, oh, we've been trying to figure out how to reach you. This is before cell phones. Mm -hmm. Uh, The person who offered you the job wasn't authorized to do that. There's no job for you. And I went, (laughs) what? (laughs) Well, you know, they hired you as a lab technician for a training department. We really need a training instructor who knows how to teach military electronic systems. Mm -hmm. And I immediately said, 
oh, I'm also a training instructor. <laughs> <laughs> and she looked at me with one of those great quizzical, you know, head cock. Like, are not you? Real. <laughs> not, no, like, no, no effing way. Are you really? You know? And I said, oh, no, no. I started talking fast. And she said, well, the head of the department is really desperate. I said, listen, why don't I talk to him? And, and so I talked to him. And he also had that little head cock. But I realized he was desperate because when I said, I'll work for the same salary as the lab tech, he said, you know, I got six weeks and we have to put it on a 10-week course. Six weeks to go. You're hired, but if you can't put it on the course, we're all fired. And you know what? All right, I did it. This is kind of when your career in teaching began too, I guess, what, right? That was the first time I actually taught in my life. Wow, so you talked your way into I the job. I taught my way into the job, put it on a 10-week course, and like got the highest ranking this program ever did. And, uh, wow. And it was actually pretty amazing. And they were working for government customers at the time. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of my halfway house. But my first job in Silicon Valley was my halfway house. It was a company called ESL that made the military systems for government customers. Uh, so it was a halfway house between my government career and a commercial career. And after that, I did two chip companies, microprocessor companies as startups, uh, one called Zilog, the other called MIPS, and then workstations and then enterprise software and video games and 21 years of kind of increasing responsibility of uh, mostly as a marketeer and then as a CEO. How did you see Silicon Valley change throughout those 21 years? What was it like when you first got there? As I said, for the first seven or eight years, no one in the United States, unless you were in the business, mm-hmm. knew about the place. And people forget, it wasn't until the rise of personal computers that computing became personal, meaning it involved you and your mother and grandmother and whatever actually started thinking about this computer stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Apple only started in 78 and IBM PCs in the early 80s. So it wasn't about to the mid-80s or late 80s that personal computers started to engage most of the United States populace, and you know, by the turn of the, the 21st century, people have, were engaged. So, kind of watching that from a very niche thing, like I was in plastics, you know, right. versus oh, you're in something I use every day, right? Um, so, watching that change, and then also watching the type of people change. You know, people who worked in Silicon Valley in the beginning, and I was kind of in the middle. I mean, mm-hmm. the Valley started really in the in the 50s and 60s. Uh, from, chip and defense business. But people were there to make some great technology and change the world and were excited about what they did. And there were very few what I would call hangers-on. You know, there were no newsletters about your industry and you wouldn't read about it. I mean, there was no whatever. It was a very down-to-earth, we're here to do business and make some money because it was also funded in a very different way. We talk about all the tech but we forget with the other piece of massive innovation that made the Valley possible what was this thing called venture capital, mm-hmm. which is just financial money spent in a way that is insane, is that venture capitalists, are, if they invest in 10 things, no, eight of them are going to fail. Mm-hmm. Boy, what kind of odds would, you know, who would give those people money? Well, it turns out that the ones that succeed make up for all the failures and then a multiple of those. Right. And that was also unique. So people think of Silicon Valley as crazy entrepreneurs and technologists, but they forget the thing that made it happen was this combination of risk-taking in the finance side at the same time there was huge risk-taking in the entrepreneurial side. And that kind of exploded by the end of the 20th century. Wow. Now, I'll give you an example. Is Even when I retired as an entrepreneur, I was lucky enough to retire uh, 99 mm-hmm. after 20 years. That's nice. I, it was nice. I was 45, and I retired wow. because— 
I wanted to see my kids grow up. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you really don't get, and I watched uh, a number of my role models at work be horrible parents at home uh, because the kids would grow up and they wouldn't see their father, and back then it was men, their father at all, and they would hate their dad. And I realized you could never get that back. You couldn't make it up. You could say, oh, we'll go on some great vacation. You don't get that time back. And so when I had the opportunity, my girls were seven and eight years old, I said, I'm going home. And by then, I had done eight startups, and that was enough. Also, my parents had been immigrants, and so I grew mm-hmm. up in a 600-square-foot apartment in New York City, and I knew what enough was. And mm-hmm. enough was, can I go home and watch my kids grow up and do something different? And while my life had been uh, as a startup guy, I didn't define my entire life as that. I wanted to see my family grow, and I wanted to do something different. I didn't know what that was, but I figured I'd figure it out. I'm sure also your experience and, like you said, dysfunctional family made you appreciate that maybe more than others wouldn't have realized. Yeah, I think now that's Mm -hmm. pretty clear. It was an unconscious thing. But for me, family was very valuable. You know, we had family events and things and whatever were Mm -hmm. never even celebrated. I didn't know what a birthday was. (laughs) It was like, you know, no, I mean, it wasn't wasn't that Dickinson, but it was like, (laughs) we had food mostly. (laughs) That I really actually did appreciate. Mm -hmm. So, In fact, I remind my friends, you don't get your report card about how you good you were as a parent until your kids are gone, and it's where they want to spend their holidays. Wow, good point. Now I'm going to think about that every holiday. So you started your first company in 96. Is Epiphany? So Epiphany was my last company. Oh, your last company. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That was number eight. That was number eight. And is that the one you started in your basement? In my living room. In your living room. <laughs> it's funny because... The whole Silicon Valley culture now you hear about coders starting their own companies in their apartments, co-work spaces, whatever. But you're kind of like the OG of that in a way. Yeah, well, people have <laughs> been doing that for a while. It was um, it was a fun company. It was mm-hmm. a very smart group of people. We invented some neat stuff. It actually worked. We got it from zero to $125 million in revenue in three years. It was, it was enterprise so- software that helped manage some functions in large corporations. And classic me, I knew nothing about it. I didn't even know what enterprise software was when my co-founder walked in and said, Steve, let's go automate you know, these departments and, and in the enterprise. I went, well, well, well that's, you know, what's that? <laughs> and then we very quickly figured it out and had a great team. And we took it to a certain size and then hired a great CEO from KPMG to run it and take mm-hmm. it public. And that's when I decided to go home. Is that what you did with the rest of your companies you started from the first to the eighth? Or You know, unlike my smart students today who think they're capable of being CEOs the day they graduate, <laughs> and some of them are, just if I could digress for a second, mm-hmm. the massive change that's occurred in entrepreneurship since I've been around, mm-hmm. it's kind of snuck up on this. If you think about it, when I was an entrepreneur, the only way you could get information about entrepreneurship is coffee. In fact, you were limited by your coffee bandwidth to other successful entrepreneurs, which mm-hmm. said a couple things. One is that you needed to be in an in- existing innovation cluster where there was some density for that to happen, right? So it, back then it was Silicon Valley or Boston in the United States. That was it. Number two is there were no books on entrepreneurship. If you read anything, there might have been some books about large company mm-hmm. entrepreneurship, no books on government innovation. Number three is if you wanted to build anything in software or even model some hardware, you needed a million dollars to buy a computer called a VAX or some kind of mini computer so you could hook up some terminals. There weren't even PCs. 
And then you maybe needed to spend another million dollars in software to kind of run it. So now we got $2 million before we're even like starting this stuff. And then there was no methodology. There was no rules at all of how do you build the startup? That is, who do you hire? When? When do you ship? In fact, every rule we had, we just kind of modeled after large companies. There was no heuristics or methodology that said, no, no, startups are different. Well, think about what we now know. Now today, information about entrepreneurship is everywhere. You just type in entrepreneurship on the Internet. It's hard to remember that there wasn't an Internet. Right, Google. <laughs> Google <Yeah. laughs> didn't even exist. So now information, now you are suffering from information overload. Now the skill set you need is not how to have coffee with people, but how do I sort through these 5,000 pieces of advice, every one of them kind of slightly different from each other? Right. Two is you no longer need to buy computers. Is computing is now, a, if you need compute power, uh, computing is a utility. You plug into Amazon Web Services, whether you're in the government or commercial environment. Number three is we do have a methodology now. Lean startup or design thinking or pick your favorite. But there are methods that says, wait a minute, startups or innovation of large companies and government organizations, they're not the same as execution of current processes. They're actually very different. So here's some methodologies to kind of use. And venture capital, boy, if you raised you know, a couple million dollars, you were like considered rich. Now that's like my students get that at a seed round. I mean, they just <laughs> kind of walk out the door and like with a cup. <laughs> you know, yes, it's Stanford and Columbia, but still, I yeah. mean, the scale of risk capital, that is angel and venture capital that are mm -hmm. going into startups is just absurd. Absurd to like, I smile when I say that. It's mm -hmm. kind of good. On the other hand, if you're in a company, it's kind of bad because now you're facing competitors who startups never were competitors to large companies. They'd never mm -hmm. had the capital to kind of do that. And then if you're a government agency, and it's particularly if you're in IT, now all of a sudden the world has kind of changed upside down because now all of a sudden there's lots of opportunities about what you should buy and acquire. And, and gee, the pace of technology is, is just moving so fast. Right. And, you know, but, but I can't acquire, you know, companies in the government. I could just acquire software and products. So how do I keep up with that? Mm -hmm. And so we've been building innovation processes for the government as well to kind of think about how do you innovate inside of IT organizations mm -hmm. and engineering organizations. But I'm getting ahead of that. So you took the experiences, like you said, there weren't any books about yep. it. And you took your experiences creating these companies and wrote a book. As I said, I retired and I had no idea what I was going to do. You know, I see some of my friends who were afraid to retire, and I, I kind of <laughs> like, what? You know, like, no, no, no. This is the life. We, no, we, no, but we were not born with a job spec, damn it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like God came down and said, this is going to be the job for the rest of your life. Life's a lot more interesting. Go out and figure it yes, out. Yes, right? I like I mean, that. That's, yeah. You know, so, okay. I figured I'd, and, and again, it was nice to have the ability to go do that, not mm -hmm. having to, you know, figure out check by check. So, I want to be clear, you don't want to do this without having some Chris, resources yeah. behind you or your wife or spouse will kill you. <laughs> I'm uh, quitting. And, yeah, yeah, quitting. Yeah, is, you take care <laughs> of it. This is it. So one of the things I remember doing is I just want to remind people that when you're doing a job, it's really easy to, to kind of default to heads down mode. In fact, in a startup, that's what you need to do to survive. I mean, mm -hmm. you're not thinking big thoughts or, you know, whatever. You're thinking about how to do your function or do your tech or do your marketing or maybe you're reading about your industry, but you're not thinking about, you know, how should the world work? And, you know, like, or if you are, you're going to get fired because you're really, <laughs> I mean, you really need to be focused is my point. Mm -hmm. But I now had some freedom, which I hadn't had for 20 years. 
And I had always been curious about why did we do things. If you remember, I said one of my traits, for mm-hmm. better or worse, was curiosity. curiosity yeah. And so I was always wondering, is, how did Silicon Valley happen? What is this venture capital stuff? Why do people write us checks? And why do we do this stuff of like we come up with an idea, we shop it around to investors, we turn it into slides, you know, mm-hmm. PowerPoint. If they like it because we had a good voice and a great PowerPoint and learned how to present, mm-hmm. you know, they go, okay, here's a check. And then they would take our plan and say, okay, this is what you told us you're going to do. Now go do it. And so we would hire engineering and sales and marketing, and we would build a product in a serial that is one step after another fashion and go through something called alpha test, beta test, and first customer ship. How hard could that be? And because the founders had a vision, which the investors funded, it would simply take every idea you had and put that in the spec that engineering would build, and you would hire sales a couple of months right after maybe beta test, and make sure that you have a building big enough to hold the bags of money that were going to come. That was it. And you stood back. And, of course, every time a startup did this, they succeeded, right? Mm-hmm. Well, of course not. <laughs> nope. 95% of them failed. But why was that? That was what we were told to do, right? Give us the idea. You know, like We'll give you money and then go execute the plan. And what I realized is that venture capitalists had no idea what they were doing. They were actually funding stuff that some of them succeeded, but we were just doing random throw stuff against the wall. We really didn't have a methodology that acknowledged this big idea that startups, unlike big companies, were actually searching for a business model while large companies are executing one. And those are fancy words to say if you're a large company or a government agency, you know who your customers are. You know what they want, right? Because you're already large, right? right? You know what your competitors have. You know what pricing works. You know how to distribute the product or deploy it or whatever. But in a startup, you're only guessing at that on day one. Mm-hmm. That's a big idea. In fact, not only are you guessing about what the product should be or the pricing, and I use the word when I teach inside of universities, is all you have is a series of untested hypotheses, which is a fancy word to just say, You're just effing guessing about a lot of things. (laughs) But we never said that to each other. It's a big idea because when things didn't go right in a startup, the first person we'd look at, it's the VP of sales. We'd say, well, obviously you're not selling this correctly. You're inept. So we fire the VP of sales. Mm -hmm. And then we'd get a new VP of sales who would be smart enough, hopefully, to say, well, that whatever sales strategy he or she was using – we need a new sales strategy. So they would change, but they would just change a piece of the sales stuff. And then mm-hmm. if that didn't work, we'd fire the VP of marketing because obviously it was the positioning. And then maybe we'd get around to firing the VP of engineering and maybe then we'd change the product. But by then we might be running out of money. Right. Wait a minute. Never once would we ever say, maybe some of our initial assumptions were wrong. We never said that because the venture capitalists funded those assumptions. But we would never say, Instead of firing people, maybe we should fire some of the plan. Mm -hmm. We never had a formal way of testing our hypotheses. And so the first book I wrote was like a emperor has no clothes book. It was called The Four Steps to the Epiphany. And it basically said, look, in a startup, we need a different way to think about what it is we're doing. And what it is we're doing is if we're trying to just build the product and ship it, assuming it's all correct, We're all going to go out of business because that is throwing stuff against the wall. Why don't we assume that on day one, we're just guessing about what features customers want, about pricing and whatever. And instead of arguing with each other inside the building, let's do two radical things. 
One is let's go outside and start talking to customers on day one with a process called customer development. That was my contribution. And the second is something that someone had built and one of my students recognized, uh, someone named Eric Reese, said, look, Steve, in the 21st century, people are using a form of development called agile development, which instead of building the product serially and only shipping it at the end, it's now possible to build products uh, interactively and iteratively where as we're getting on the building using customer development, we can actually now test incremental pieces of the product and say, are these the features you want or is this the user interface or is this, you know, solve the problem and get feedback continually, continually. Mm-hmm. And when we get that feedback, we could do something that never existed before, and that's this notion of a pivot. A pivot says, wait a minute, when we get enough evidence to say something is wrong about the product or about the distribution channel or about pricing, we get to change it without firing people. We get to fire that part of the plan. So a pivot is defined as a substantive change to one or more parts of that business model. Yes, yeah. And then the third piece of what became the Lean Startup was – just finding a way to visually describe this stuff. And a smart guy in Switzerland named Alexander Osterwalder came up with something called the business model canvas. And the business model canvas was a simple one-page diagram that concatenated 400 pages of academic literature of what's a business model into a single picture you could describe to your mother, in fact, to your grandmother, even if she didn't speak English. I mean, you could you could say, hey, here's what you worry about when you build a business. Mm-hmm. Here are the customers and distribution channel and what's called value proposition. That is, what does the customers want? If it's a products or service and what's the revenue model, et cetera. And those three components, Osterwalder's canvas, my customer development process, and Eric Reese's observation about agile engineering became what was called the lean startup, which mm-hmm. became a movement in Silicon Valley and then companies and now government agencies on how to build products and services that people want and need with speed and urgency and get used. Yeah. How can the lean startup movement help government innovate? They're obviously challenged with that in certain areas right now. I mean, as to be expected, technology is advancing at such an exponential rate. Based on your knowledge and expertise, how can people in government overcome those roadblocks in innovating? That's a great question because, you know, when you're in the government, you kind Mm -hmm. of look and say, well, we can't do what companies do because we're bound by we can only do what's authorized by law. And, Mm -hmm. oh, we no way can we do what a startup does. And, gee, we don't have access to the people or capital or whatever. And that's all wrong. I've now spent a lot of time in Washington now helping different components of DOD and other government agencies kind of think about innovation. And first of all, we took the business model canvas and made a version for the government called the mission model canvas. And the mission model canvas takes basically what are all the components necessary to build innovation, but instead of in some areas, you're not interested in revenue, but you are interested in mission achievement or Mm -hmm. success. You're not interested in a distribution channel, but you are interested in deployment. So we just kind of might have, and by the way, yeah, you might have internal customers, but you also have beneficiaries, stakeholders, war fighters, et cetera. So your customer segments now just sometimes get some different names. And yeah, you maybe not advertise, but you certainly need buy-in from uh, leadership. So the box has kind of changed, but the notion of having a single piece of paper to kind of say what it is you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then we've helped government organizations build an innovation pipeline. That is, think of a parallel process that helps innovators inside government organizations operate with speed and urgency to deploy stuff that's needed and wanted now. And that's kind of interesting. 
we were just talking a couple of days ago with a government agency of figuring out what is the mission of an innovation group inside of a government agency. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty simple. It's not using the word innovation. It's helping all organizations deliver stuff that matters with speed and urgency and deploy it at scale. That's it. Find things that matter, not like, you know, we could accelerate the time card thing. I mean, that might be important, but that might not be mission critical. Mm -hmm. So what are the things that matter? Two is with speed and urgency, right? We have existing processes of program management processes. No, no, we're talking about a very different process, right? We're talking about speed and urgency. And when we say deploy at scale, we don't mean another demo to another general or another, you know, head of agency. We're talking about, no, no, how do you figure out how to get the money to deploy it to Mm -hmm. the people who need it? That's what an innovation pipeline does. It doesn't replace the classic, here's our execution pipeline of our current capabilities and our IT organization. But for the first time, it gives the innovators, which every government organization has, a framework to operate under. This is a big idea. Innovation happens in the government all the time. But historically, it's been what I call heroic innovation. It is one person who's not figured out the technology or whatever, but has beaten his or her head against the bureaucratic wall to make the system work. Mm-hmm. And then they celebrate that one person, but there's no learning on how to make that repeatable. It's a big idea. Innovation currently doesn't have a repeatable and scalable process itself in government agencies. And this notion of an innovation pipeline is to give government CIOs and leaders a way to say, no, 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 here's a methodology that works end to end. And it starts with, okay, where do we source innovation from? Well, we can source it internally, but we also have vendors and contractors and others who, you know, could provide us resources as well. Great. What problem are we solving? Well, I'm acquiring this tech. No, that's not a. (laughs) You've already made it an RFP. (laughs) No, we're not talking about acquisition. We're talking about what problem are we trying to solve? Mm -hmm. And this historically has been the military problem is everybody rails about acquisition. Well, by the time it becomes an acquisition, we missed the real problem was that it it was the requirements process that was Mm -hmm. broken. You know, the requirements folks were treating this like acquiring pencils and aircraft carriers were the same thing. We really want to understand what problem we're working on. And then we want to have a rapid process to test and iterate with the warfighters and users or whatever the government organization is. Is this solution what you were actually thinking about? And almost always, almost always, whether it's government or companies or even startups, the problem you think you're solving on day one almost always is a symptom of a much different problem. Almost always. And it's kind of fun to watch that evolution. Our current government requirements and acquisition process, which is changing, kind of assumes the minute you write it down, (laughs) that is the problem and solution. Mm -hmm. And we just kind of insist, let's spend some time up front and build rapid prototypes, these what we call minimum viable products, by Mm -hmm. getting out and testing them with people and, and users. And the results are just amazing. And government organizations can build this without screwing up their core mission, but also provides an interesting way to energize and retain the most creative people you have inside of your organization. When people say, well, the creative people don't work for a government agent, they're just, I mean, I've seen more creative Mm -hmm. people inside the government because they're either driven by the mission or circumstance or whatever, but they're there. They're just looking for a process that Mm -hmm. allows them to operate not shortcutting their bureaucracy, but creating a process for themselves Mm -hmm. to get things deployed at speed. And how we've done that is a combination of my work and Eric Reese's work and Osterwalder and the Lean Startup and a a guy named Pete Newell. 
He used to run the Army's Rapid Equipping Force, and Pete and I had spent some time together and uh, realized what he had built at the uh, REF, Rapid Equipping Force, and what I had been doing in Silicon Valley is that the same methodology that worked on the battlefield works in the boardroom. And so we combined this stuff and came up with this innovation pipeline. We also came up with an idea to kind of engage students in national service with a program called Hacking for Defense. Mm-hmm. Can I talk about that for a second? Of course, yeah. Um, we had the pleasure of interviewing Pete a few episodes ago. Oh, great. So this is a great topic, yeah. So about seven years ago, the U.S. National Science Foundation, or Federal Research Agency, was trying to figure out uh, why the SBIR program, that is the Small Business Innovation Research Grants that we give to scientists who want to commercialize their inventions, really wasn't working well. In fact, Mm -hmm. their conclusion was that we were handing out cars before we were acquiring driver's ed. That is, you would fund the scientists to say, oh, I want to commercialize Mm -hmm. my insight and start a company, and they would have no idea what that meant. And the NSF had saw my class and this Lean Startup Method and asked whether I would be interested in trying it out on NSF scientists. And fast forward, we turned the class into something called the National Science Foundation I-Corps, or Innovation Corps. Mm-hmm. It's now taught in 81 universities. It's, it's wow. become the standard for commercializing science at the NSF. The NIH adopted it for two divisions, and it's in multiple parts of the U.S. government. And it's taught in, I don't know, 50 or 60 universities on top of the 80-some-odd mm-hmm. uh, that the NSF has it. So this kind of i Lean Launchpad class was kind of a known process, works pretty well, pretty intensive. But basically... It was for people who would come in with their own inventions or ideas, and they would spend six to ten weeks getting out of the building and building MVPs, just like I suggested that we now have startups do this in Lean. We mm-hmm. do this as a class. Well, Pete and I were sitting and talking about how do we engage students in national service. And another gentleman, Joe Felter, who was at Stanford working in one of the organizations there, who Joe is now, by the way, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for South and Southeast Asia, came up with the idea that we could use our Lean Launchpad class, identical, but instead of having students come in and work on their own problems, why don't we go out to the different branches of the U.S. government and ask them for their problems? And in fact, get people to sponsor a problem, Mm -hmm. and we would put together teams of the best students we could find at first Stanford, and now, happy to say, Hacking for Defense is taught in 22 universities across the country. And it was authorized by the National Defense Authorization Act, and thank you, Congress, And (laughs) though we could use some more money. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I've always had this thing that said, we made a mistake. Actually, we've run a 40-year science experiment when we ended the draft, is that I think we should have a draft, but the fact that there's no national service means there's no skin in the game for anybody. And I think that's been a mistake for the country. So part of my agenda was any way I could engage students, particularly where I teach, my computer science students have no interest. Or It's not because they're not interested. They're just not exposed to the government. They're, they are exposed to, oh, I could work for Google or Facebook or Dropbox or whatever. But the DOD or, or any part of the government is not even on their list because they've never interacted with any parts mm-hmm. of the government. And they didn't even know the government had anything interesting to work on. Okay, well, that's that's a failure of us. So part of the hacking for defense thing was to go out to government agencies and see if we could bring in some of the toughest problems they have and have some pretty smart students go work on this stuff for six to ten weeks. And we ran the prototype now almost four years ago at Stanford. 
And we were stunned about both the success and the interest in other universities kind of teaching it and other government agencies saying, yeah, here's our problem. So we set up a nonprofit to, called Hacking for Defense, uh, Inc., to funnel all the source, all the problems, which we now kind of distribute out to all the universities. And I have been um, surprised, I guess, and, and impressed with the success of the students is that somewhere close to 40% of them now continue to engage with their government sponsors. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's like, whoa. Yeah. You know? Because that wasn't my goal. It wasn't a recruiting goal. But mm-hmm. at minimum, I just wanted them to see, no, here's what the government does. And right. there are very smart people in the government working on some real tough problems who can really use your help. And so it's kind of a civics lesson, hands-on civics lesson in a very specific part of the country. At the same time we started Hacking for Defense, we also started a version with the State Department called Hacking for Diplomacy. And then the program kind of expanded. Berkeley uh, stood up a Hacking for Impact, a Hacking for Nonprofits. Duke did a Hacking for Environment. Columbia University, uh, besides doing Hacking for Defense, is also doing Hacking for Energy. And this year we'll stand up uh, Hacking for Oceans and Hacking for Cities. That's awesome. So, so this framework, which we started seven years ago with mm-hmm. the National Science Foundation Innovation Corps, had some legs. And basically it's didn't mean to be mysterious about the class itself, but it basically says the way we were teaching entrepreneurship was just also wrong. Just as we were doing entrepreneurship wrong, thinking mm-hmm. we were mimicking large companies, the way we used to teach entrepreneurship is the capstone class in any university that is the top class was how to write a business plan. Well, we kind of know no business plan survives first contact with customers. Mm-hmm. But that's what we were teaching students to do. And then we said, okay, you take that class, you know how to be an entrepreneur. Well, where I come from, no, no, no. You get your hands dirty and you get thrown out of a lot of places <laughs> and you build a lot of stuff that no one wants. And then they say, this is garbage. That's when you learn how to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. But no one was teaching an experiential, hands-on entrepreneurship class. I mean, there might have been some technology versions, but not right. someone that did the full entrepreneurship is a full body sport. Mm-hmm. And in these classes that we're talking about, these students get out of the building and talk to 10 to 15 customers or stakeholders a week and build a new minimum viable product every week. And if they haven't gotten thrown out of any place, they're not trying hard enough. So at the end of the class, they've talked to 100 plus people. They've built you know, five to 10 iterations of what product and service. And they've really had a big view of not only that people want this, this product market fit, but what price and where should we build it? And, you know, what's the manufacturing cost? And, you know, all the things that you actually worry about. And it doesn't make them an expert, but it does make them engaged in all the components. And now if you're thinking about hacking for defense, now students who never knew about DOD or part of the Army or part of GSA or part of government health care or CMS, they're now engaged in that organization going, oh, man, this is pretty complex. This is like a lot harder and a lot more enjoyable than working for Google. Uh, <laughs> so maybe the starting salary is different, but now mm-hmm. they have a, a different See real view, impact. Real impact, yeah. but also an impact of they'll never think of the government as, gee, this organization that doesn't do anything or people mm-hmm. just sit around or doesn't add any value. And again, to get the best and the brightest from the Stanfords and the Columbias and the whatever MITs or, who historically just would go off to the highest paying okay. job. I wanted to create a, a national service program where we could do this. And hopefully my idea in the future is um, I think we need to figure out how to make national service a, mm-hmm. a bigger idea. And I'm going to work on that. That's next. It is next. Retired, but still working on it. 
You know, re- retired means you just get to do what you want. That's doesn't true. Mean you, doesn't mean you get to sit home and eat chocolates. I guess you could do that. I just wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> it's interesting because uh, Pete talked about entrepreneurship similarly, you know, all the blood, sweat and tears that goes into it. It's taking this big risk and putting everything you have into something. Yes. It's hard to just teach that in a book. Typically, you want to hear it from practitioners, which mm-hmm. is why universities who have adjuncts like me, we're not replacements for the faculty, but we can know from whence we speak. Mm-hmm. And two is, again, so here's a big idea about entrepreneurship education. And I was just surprised that no one made this connection, is that founders of companies, founders, or innovators inside of large age, government agencies are closest to artists than any mm-hmm. other profession, not accountants. But artists. Well, about 500 years ago during the Renaissance, we figured out how to teach artists. You don't have them read art books. You have them actually, you might teach them some theory Mm -hmm. about perspective and color, but it's a ton of practice and apprenticeship. It's a big idea. We figured that art is a hands-on, whether it's painting or sculpture or anything else, a hands-on activity only taught by Mm hands-on. Again, theory, but ton of practice. And about 150 years ago, we realized you know what? Teaching art to the youngest possible population, art appreciation, whether it was finger painting or making little ashtrays or whatever, made you everybody appreciate art. And most people said, boy, this is hard. I don't want to do this. But some people at a very young age went, really, painting is a thing? You I mean, the thing I love to do is actually something like it's okay in our society to mm-hmm. go do. And so you identify artists at the early possible time. It's a direct analogy for teaching entrepreneurship. We were teaching entrepreneurship like it was accounting that you could read it from a book, when in fact, you should be teaching theory, but a ton of hands-on practice. Mm -hmm. And we were missing that you should also be teaching entrepreneurship to everybody at the earliest possible age to say, hey, this is what's possible. But a couple of people are going to raise their hand going, really, this is a job? I mean, I just don't have to show up every day at the same, I can actually start something? Yes. And so that was the radical breakthrough, at least in my head, mm-hmm. about how to think about creating courses that actually made a lot more sense to me, having been a practitioner, that, that would be more applicable, I, th- I, I think. It's not that we don't need theory. Mm-hmm. It's that we need theory combined with practice. Right. And before we close, I wanted to ask, so similarly, you know, we still have a lot to learn about startups. And though they've been around for a while, it still seems like, Entering a startup, building a startup, and mixing that in with larger established companies is still a challenge. You recently wrote a blog post, How to Keep Your Job as Your Company Grows. So you talked about the changes of being an early employee in the startup to finding out your role has to change when the company is growing and and that kind of coming as a shock. I wanted to quote something that you wrote in this blog post. You said, it's not likely that the skills you have on day one are the skills needed as the company scales to the next level. I think that's really interesting. I don't think it's something many people... You don't get the memo. Yeah. Right? yeah. Right? No one writes you this memo that mm-hmm. says, hey, work your butt off and when you're due right. and you're done, we're going to replace you with someone else because you don't know what to do next. Mm-hmm. What? W- wait a minute. My business card said, you know, VP of marketing. Went, <laughs> oh, no, that was a, until we fire you. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what? Yeah, until um, your skills are no longer so, applicable. So, and, so there's yeah. two... Big ideas embedded in that. Mm -hmm. One which we now kind of understand but didn't even understand when I was an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. is that startups are kind of a Shakespearean tragedy, meaning just as you're becoming successful, if you're an an early employee, Mm -hmm. the company goes through a metamorphosis or a change to the next level. And so I kind of think of startups having three major phases. One is 
you're all working as a small team. It's you and maybe five or seven others or 10. And you're looking for what's called product market fit. You know, you're building product, you're talking to customers, you're trying to find something that people will grab out of your hands, right? Whether it's software or hardware, and you're working like crazy people, right? All hours, but you're loving it, et cetera. The day you find product market fit, well, that's great. You all want to open the champagne and you're going, okay, we're now going to scale. And whatever title I had, I'm just going to be managing more people next. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out the next step requires a very different skill set, right. right? Now we need to build the organization and it won't be us tight five or 10 people. We need to go to 45 or 150 people. And the skills we need now are more organizational skills. It's not just like, let's throw stuff against the wall. We've already found what kind of works. Now we need to find profitability or need to find scale. Oh, we need to have organization. We need to have like budgets and schedules and whatever. You any good at that? No, I was great at just making something. No, no. You any good at that? Because if you're not, well, thanks for all your hard work. And we're not going to fire you, but here's your new boss. You go, what? what? What What do you mean my new boss? I didn't sign. I've been working my butt off for 24-7, whatever. You didn't tell me. This isn't fair. How come? Whatever. And that's the nature of companies is that's why it's Shakespearean. It's like a bittersweet tragedy. Success means that the company might outgrow your current skill set and you didn't get that memo when you signed up for working your heart out, right? In the best case, your company will treat you with respect and find a new role for you. But what I never understood is that as your role changes, here you were in charge of everything, right? You were the entire department or whatever. Telling somebody that you no longer have the right skills in the next step is a personal loss. It's not that you just can't deal with change. It's that it just devalues what, what you feel about your skills and about your importance. You know, it devalues your, you feel a loss about autonomy. You know, I used to be able to do anything and now I got to fit with this plan or budget or whatever. And so it sometimes, and this was what I wrote about, I handled it in the worst possible way. You know, I just thought it was all about me and why should anything change and how come you're changing and that's wrong. Without understanding, that's the nature of both capitalism of how we build companies. The goal of a startup, by the way, is not to be a startup. It's a spooky idea. A startup, in my definition, is a temporary organization Mm -hmm. designed to find a repeatable and scalable business model. And if you parse that, it's a little interesting. Startup is a temporary organization. Well, a startup is not to be a startup, it's to be a large company. So the startup phase, which we're all working together and it feels passionate and whatever, that's sad. It's temporary. Mm -hmm. If we're successful, we're going to have 200 people. We might not even know each other's names. Right. (gasps) So temporary is designed to find a repeatable and scalable business model. Well, repeatable means we're not going to be throwing things against the wall. We're searching for something we could do time after again. Same sales, same idea, same whatever. Business model means we're going to find out all the pieces, not only what people want, but pricing, channel, et cetera. So to answer your question, this stuff is kind of understood that startups go through stages, but we still have still do a bad job of telling early employees about this. Because who wants to be told is you're going to be Moses taking the team to the promised land, but you can't cross over. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Who wants to join that? Well, I I bet you if we all understood that, we could actually make roles Mm -hmm. for people. But historically, venture capital or investors go, no, 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 don't tell them. We'll we'll deal with this later. Let's kick the can down the road. And I think those problems are much solvable day one. So, for example, we give everybody titles the day they started in the company. Mm 
well, if I know that we're, we're going to have to change your title, taking a title away is really, really difficult, mm-hmm. right? Really difficult. Even if you do it voluntarily, you feel like you lost something. Uh, you, it's what you've grown to know and do. Right. Yeah. So imagine we said there are no titles on day one, right? And we let people know that our goal is, in fact, to grow, that we mm-hmm. could hire people who know how to manage to the next level. And maybe some of us might want to aspire to do that, but maybe some of us are going to find different roles. Again, just acknowledging that this is the nature of startups growing Mm -hmm. rather than it's a personal failure of you. I have a closing question for you, and it's something that I think you've talked about before. Why did this type of entrepreneurship take off in Silicon Valley the way it did? And do you think it has the potential to take off in other parts of the country, even though it seemed like it's kind of tried happening and not? Silicon Valley was a real happy accident. If anybody's interested, I actually wrote and uh, put up a video called The Secret History of Silicon Valley. It's on YouTube. If you just Google Secret History, you'll see a, a version I did in, as an invited talk at Google. And, and the summary is, is um, Silicon Valley was a happy accident of the U.S. government in the 1950s and 60s in the Cold War with the Soviet Union funded weapons research in almost every major uh, university in the United States, including Stanford. It was a unique accident is that the dean of engineering, a guy named Fred Terman, had spent World War II building electronic warfare and electronic intelligence systems for the U.S. government. When he came back to Stanford, he made Stanford's expertise microwaves and military electronics, electronic warfare and electronic intelligence. But he did something quite different than any other university at the time in the 50s and 60s. He told his grad students, his professors, and anybody in the university that taking your ideas and going out and commercializing them was great for your academic career and great for your country. And he told his professors that consulting for companies, sitting on company boards, and helping commercial ventures was going to be very good for your promotion in academia and engineering. It was rare. And so it, in fact, helped companies kind of leave Stanford's engineering group. And there were a ton of microwave spinouts in the 50s and 60s that Mm. he encouraged. And so there was a tight collaboration. And, uh, you know, he encouraged his students to do the same. So Stanford became an outward-facing university. Now, it's ironic that UC Berkeley in the 50s and 60s won more Nobel Prizes than Stanford in physics. And in fact, had even smarter people. Any idea why Berkeley didn't become an outward-facing university? They were working for the government. Know what they were working on? Nope. Nuclear weapons. Uh, so, so one could imagine you did not want Berkeley's technology to be right. outward-facing. Right. Whereas at Stanford, it was basically electronics and mm-hmm. microwave devices. And yes, its uses and very specific stuff was classified. But the other components were easily commercializable and sold to other companies. And so Stanford became this entrepreneurial kind of beacon for people who wanted to build new companies. And so the culture was amenable for when the first semiconductor uh, company got set up, which was Shockley Semiconductor. And then those folks spun out and became Fairchild Semiconductor. The Valley already had an entrepreneurial culture next to Stanford. And again, venture capital started appearing in terms of angel investors coming down from San Francisco, hearing about these crazy new companies. And so in the beginning of the 1960s, there wasn't venture capital. There was angel investors, and then venture capital kind Mm -hmm. of exploded. And then one other component, in the late 1970s, when the U.S. government changed some tax rules 
There was also a venture capital innovation culture around Boston, around Route 128 and MIT. And by the way, the same thing was happening around MIT. And one would have expected that MIT in Boston would have been the entrepreneurial leader in the United States. Turned out that it was our culture that changed. Meaning in the U.S., those financiers in Silicon Valley began to operate like pirates. And the bankers and the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, excuse me, in Boston, kept operating like bankers from the 19th century. And it was this pirate culture that started funding things at scale that the folks on the East Coast just wouldn't touch. And so the culture between the West Coast and the East Coast actually made a difference for the first uh, 30 or 40 years. To answer your question, in the world, there's probably five, maybe 10 places where you could raise $100 million for a new startup. Silicon Valley, Beijing, Shanghai, New York, maybe London, and then you're kind of out of a list, mm-hmm. and maybe Singapore. Most of these places were actually engineered. Silicon Valley was kind of organic. Mm-hmm. It's organic, so that's just... Silicon Valley was kind of a, just a just Happened. an accident. Mm-hmm. But uh, Mike Bloomberg engineered New York as an ecosystem. Right, right. The Chinese government copied the Israelis and uh, built an entrepreneurial ecosystem as well. Maybe Herzl is another place in in the world that you could raise a ton of money. You know, the good news is for the world that entrepreneurship is exploding all over Mm -hmm. because the internet makes this information and the lean methodology provides a cookbook. It just means we need to work harder and faster and Mm -hmm. uh, apply some of these tools inside of government organizations because uh, we could make the country better and we could keep our people safer and secure if we could move at the speed of what's required. Any parting words of wisdom for aspiring entrepreneurs? The most fun and legal thing you could do. <laughs> so, and for those of you inside government organizations, don't leave. Help your leadership understand that they could build an innovation pipeline inside your government organization. I think that's the best thing they could do for themselves and their country. Again, in the past, innovation was individual and heroic inside of large organizations. It no longer needs to be. You know, I've written about now how to build this pipeline, and we sometimes help government organizations do that. And so there are or any government CIOs who are interested in, in just dropping an email at sblanket at stanford.edu and I'm happy to chat. Wonderful. Well, Steve, this has been such a special conversation. I really appreciate you joining us all the way from Silicon Valley. Thank you so much. Thank you. This week's episode is supported by Lumina. Lumina's mission is to use AI systems to protect the world. To learn more about Lumina, visit its website at luminaanalytics.com. Wow, it was such a cool and special conversation with Steve. It's always so interesting to learn how our guests got to where they are, and his story was particularly unique. I mean, growing up in a dysfunctional family taught him how to work in chaos and uncertainty, which is a concept I'd never thought of before. It's interesting that he said many CEOs he knows have also grown up that way. And volunteering to go to Thailand while currently serving in Miami, you know, just for the thrill of it. It's really inspiring how he just takes on any opportunity that comes to him. And the thought of heading to Silicon Valley in the late 70s and never coming back and not knowing what the town and the industry will look like in 10, 15 years. I mean, you know, we started eight tech companies and use those experiences to not only teach, you know, students today, but help industry and government innovate together is really interesting and inspiring. 
I also loved what he said about starting in a startup and not expecting your position to eventually change as the company scales. It's a really relatable experience, especially for entrepreneurs, you know, looking to join a small company or start their own someday. I think it's something we can all learn from. The blog post is up and it's called How to Keep Your Job as Your Company Grows. I really recommend reading. It's very interesting. I'm really excited to see how Steve, though retired, he says, continues to help government and people innovate. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of GovCast. I'm your host, Amanda Zieta. See you next time. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media. It's produced and edited by Rob Ford. Our theme music is provided by Big Hoax. Our executive producer is Michael Hoffman. If you're interested in sponsoring GovCast, you can email Andy Andrews at randrews at governmentcio.com. Mm-hmm.